Hi, everyone. Welcome back to another episode of The Gestational Diabetic. I am your host, Tracy Houston, and I am here to inform you so that you can be empowered to be a confident member of your healthcare team. I am so excited for today's episode. I got to chat with Lily Nichols. If you don't already know her, Lily is a certified diabetes educator and a registered dietitian, and she has authored two books. One is Real Food for Gestational Diabetes, and the other is Real Food for Pregnancy. She has really made her name renowned in the gestational diabetic community for sure, as well as in prenatal nutrition, because she follows evidence-based research, and she is all about informing and literally like bettering our world. We talked about so many things, you guys. We talked about gestational diabetic guidelines, the testing, how testing sometimes yields false positives. That's something you definitely don't want to miss. We talked about blood sugar in our normal health, not just in pregnancy, how the education and treatment of gestational diabetes takes on like a fear-based approach. We talked about cheat meals, you guys. We talked about so much. And guess what? I didn't even get through half of the questions that I wanted to ask her. So I'm definitely going to have her back so that I can finish up those questions. We did get into the weeds a little bit. So if you don't know what gestational diabetes is, I suggest you go back to the first episode and listen to the definition of gestational diabetes of what it is and what it is not. Also, I wanna mention that we did have a few glitches when we recorded, so if you hear a stall or a stutter or something while you're listening to the episode, don't worry, it's not your phone or your device or your connection. It's just, it was uh, our internet connection as we recorded the episode. Also, I'm going to call myself out because I said awesome completely out of context and it was just weird for me at least. I don't know if Lily noticed it, but it was weird for me. So if you guys hear me say awesome and you're like, uh that doesn't really fit. Yeah, I know. I caught it later, you know, but I I was so nervous about interviewing her because this is my first interview. So just bear with me guys. And as a reminder, the information in this podcast cannot be used to treat or diagnose any medical condition. It is strictly for informational purposes only. But by all means, if you find that this is good content and you want to open a dialogue about it, please do share it with your healthcare team and other moms that may be interested. All right, let's get into it. Thank you so much for coming on, Lily. I wanted to um, ask you if you could get started with us and tell us how you got started writing your book for gestation, Real Food for Gestational Diabetes. Sure. Yeah, that was uh, that's my my first book, my first baby. Uh, that book was inspired by my clinical work with gestational diabetes. So, a little background about my um, career: I've spent most of my work as a registered dietitian and certified diabetes educator working in the gestational diabetes and prenatal nutrition space. Um, and I've seen it from a lot of different angles. So I've seen it from the clinical angle, of course, working one-on-one -on -one with clients. I've seen it at the public policy angle. I used to work with the state of California's diabetes and pregnancy program. So working on the nutrition and exercise guidelines for that. I've seen it on the training other practitioners, which is something that, that I do, um, and also consulting on, on research projects. And it was in you know, all of these realms and working for many, many years that I began to um, you know, see the issue of gestational diabetes uh, differently maybe than how it was presented to me, um, just from like a, you know, an education 
uh, perspective or these are the guidelines and follow this. Once right. you start putting things into practice and working with clients and seeing their blood sugar readings and getting just a better handle of the situation, you can see that there's a lot of holes in my opinion, um, in how it's managed. And uh, one of the main things is that the, I think the nutrition guidelines need to be completely flipped upside down. <laughs> They're yeah. very carb heavy um, conventionally. And in practice, I mean, gestational diabetes is literally carbohydrate intolerance of pregnancy, meaning like your body is not able to tolerate large amounts of carbohydrates without experiencing high blood sugar. So it doesn't really make sense to me just from like a common sense. You don't have to know anything about nutrition or medicine or anything to be like, huh, why would they want carbohydrate right. intolerant people to eat like half of their diet coming from carbohydrates? Mm -hmm. um, and when you do that, and I used to be, you know, a, a good dietitian, followed all the rules and, and taught the guidelines to my clients. A lot of times their blood sugar got worse because it's not, yeah. it's not well processed um, by their body. So Real Food for Gestational Diabetes um, came out of, you know, my long journey through and around the gestational diabetes world, um, clinically and professionally, uh, where I found that going lower carb, even if it's just a little bit lower carb, and really mm -hmm. incorporating more nutrient-dense foods, you're providing a wide range of micronutrients as well. These things work together to better balance blood sugar and give you better outcomes. And um, I decided to write it up into a book because you don't really affect um, change and meet as and change as many um, people's pregnancies and their babies' lives, really, um, unless you get this out on a wider scale. Um, I can only see so many people one-on-one. -on -one. And so that's really where Real Food for Gestational Diabetes came from. I was really tired of having clients referred to me just having to undo all of the bad advice they had been given or getting tagged in, you know, social media groups for gestational diabetes and just hearing the same story again and again and again. So I'm a dietitian, I got this dietary advice and my blood sugar got worse. What's going on? I'm following the meal plan. I'm like, I know. That's exactly the problem. <laughs> so <laughs> so here I am. Yeah. And no, you know, your book really has made an impact because I'm still active in the uh, Facebook groups on gestational diabetes and such. And, you know, your your book is referred to all the time by many, many moms. And then I've also been in, um, well, I've seen some people say that their dietitian was the one who told them about your book, you know, so I don't know just how far your book is reaching, but I know that it is reaching. And I know you said that they, um, what is it, the Czech Republic? they yes. they translated it into their language and um they use it as their guideline is that correct uh sort of so the the head like top diabetologist is what they call him diabetes a doctor that specializes in diabetes um, mm -hmm. in the country got a hold of my book and she was able to change um maybe not her alone but she was able to influence certainly um the guidelines and get them changed so the official guidelines were changed i believe it was in 2016 um and then we translated the book i think that was released gosh i think last year um 2019 mm -hmm. maybe maybe late 2018 um, so the book isn't their official guidelines, but they did change their official guidelines based on the information that they um, came across in research that was in a uh, real food for GD. So that was pretty cool.
Gotcha. And yeah, you know, I have the book here. I bought it in what, 2018. And that was two years after my GD pregnancy. And I was like, man, where was this when I needed it? You know, because I didn't, I didn't have what I thought was a sufficient guidance or support with um, gestational diabetes. And I went after my diabetic appointment, excuse me, after my um, appointment with the dietitian, I went home and I started, I went online to research, you know, gestation. And I found an article that you wrote, I think for the Modern Mamas podcast or something like that. And that was the only article that I found that had sufficient information, but I still wanted more because to be honest, I kind of felt like um, this was like a made up thing that my doctor was trying to milk more money out of me, you know, that type of thing. Yeah. So, um, so I was still looking for more information and there was nothing, you know, like the big sites, the Mayo Clinic and diabetes.org or whatever, they had very basic information, you know, like these are your risk factors and symptoms and that. So I was so happy to, to find your book. And I actually just noticed that you self-published Yes. That is awesome. That is awesome. A great, um, a great victory for you, for both of your books. I have both of your books here. Yeah. Awesome. Okay. So that actually kind of leads into my first question. Testing for gestational diabetes, is it necessary? Oh yeah. This is a whole big can of worms. (laughs) (laughs) So just to preface this for anyone who's, who is listening and is new to this, um, if you're like looking at my books and you're, you're on the brink of like deciding what tests to go for or not go for or whatever, just to be aware, like Real Food for Gestational Diabetes is written from the perspective of you've been diagnosed, this is what to do. I don't go into testing methods. Maybe if I put out a second edition, I will add that section into the book. But my other book, Real Food for Pregnancy, um, I did add a big section in the lab test chapter on screening options for gestational diabetes, where I really get into the weeds. So for people who want more information beyond what we're going to talk about right now, um, chapter nine of Real Food for Pregnancy goes into this. So this is a good question, um, because I think there's so much controversy around what screening method to use. And, you know, there's like, first of all, do you need to have a test? I mean, we have to have the conversation about, as you sort of alluded to earlier, is gestational diabetes just this made up thing where my doctor is trying to milk, milk out more money for me or put me in the high risk category or mm-hmm. ruin my birth plans or, I mean, all of, the, <laughs> all of right. those concerns, which are valid, by the way. Mm-hmm. Um, and I totally understand. Um, so first we need to understand that, that yes, elevated blood sugar in pregnancy, which is what gestational diabetes is, is a legitimate thing. Um, There's a threshold beyond which high blood sugar can affect your health, but also baby's health. And so, yes, I do think gestational diabetes is a real thing. And I think it is worth identifying so that you can do all the proactive things to manage it. mainly diet lifestyle things, but sometimes that can also include medication because we have really, really well-documented risks if blood sugar remains high. Um, Mm -hmm. And this is especially in like severe cases where blood sugar is like, you know, 20, 30, 40, 50, 60 points above 
um, above range using using American um, standards right. for for range, like milligrams per deciliter. I'm not talking the international millimoles per liter, just to clarify for any international listeners. Uh, the challenge, though, is in identifying who actually has a blood sugar issue and who doesn't. Mm -hmm. There's no perfect testing method. And that is really frustrating to a lot of people because there are just by default, there's going to be false positives and there's going right. to be false negatives as well. Yeah. So the gold standard for identifying gestational diabetes is a glucose tolerance test, also called the glucola, um, where you drink a sweet drink and then they measure your blood sugar afterwards. And there's all sorts of different versions of the um, glucola out there and you know most of the United States does a different version than what many other countries do but nonetheless you drink a certain amount of sugar and they're trying to see a blood sugar response um, and that's you know that's an okay method um, it can sometimes give you false positives for people who um, already eat a low-carb diet especially people on a very low-carb mm -hmm. diet because their pancreas is just not primed to producing right. large boluses of insulin um, all the time. So you can get false positives on that. Um, and I do have like a two-part series on my blog um, from, from my first pregnancy um, called Why I Drank the Glucola and I Failed the Glucola. And I, oh. I do recommend people um, check those out because I was actually one of those people who fell into the um, false positive category, at least on the, the 50 gram screening uh, method. So yeah, I'll leave that there for what it is. For people who are not necessarily eating low carb, for anybody who's regularly having juice, smoothies, um, sweets, um, you know, a fair amount of like bread or crackers or uh, anyone who does cereal or oatmeal for breakfast on the regular, I, you're I don't think you're at risk for having a false positive on a glucose tolerance test. So if you're game to drink the, you know, 50, 75 or hundred grams of glucose and just do the test and have a, you know, cut and dry test and be done with it. Um, I think that's an okay method. And there's lots of people who don't want to do it. And I think that's fine too, which is why I'll talk about the alternatives. Um, so another alternative that some people will do is a, um, uh, hemoglobin A1C, or it's also just mm -hmm. called A1C, and this is a screening method that can actually only be used in the first trimester because your blood sugar metabolism and um, turnover of hemoglobin and all sorts of things are shifting in pregnancy, which can make it inaccurate as a diagnostic measure. But in the first trimester, essentially you're looking at your pre-pregnancy blood sugar levels because your A1C is reflective of the last three months or so. Um, on average. And so that's really essentially stratifying you into non-diabetic, pre-diabetic, or type 2 diabetes. But anything in the pre-diabetic or range or above, you're looking at essentially a gestational diabetes diagnosis. So that is something where you could screen early and then not have to do the um, sugar drink later on. Now, if you pass and you have like normal A1C in the first trimester, there's still a possibility, although it's not as common, that you could develop blood sugar issues later in pregnancy. So it is worthwhile doing something to check later on, um, but you would want to screen with something other than an A1C. And then the, um, I'm going to skip over some of the like stand-ins people try to use to replace a glucose tolerance test, like fruit juice, jelly beans, uh, just a test meal, testing before and after a single meal, 
Um, I don't recommend those. And I go into that in Real Food for Pregnancy, but I want to jump into the part that's actually a, a, an accurate um, measure as a replacement for a glucose tolerance test. And so the third option would be home glucose monitoring, where you measure your blood sugar with a glucometer. Um, now some people are even doing a continuous glucose monitor for a period of one to two weeks. And you see where your blood sugar levels average. You can see your response to different types of meals. So you can do your usual diet and then you can do some really low carb meals or some really high carb meals. And you can compare your blood sugar readings to the blood sugar levels, levels observed in um, an uncomplicated, no diabetes, blood sugar issues, pregnancy. And you can also compare them to the gestational diabetes uh, targets that they would teach you as if you got a positive diagnosis. And that's something where you can work with your provider to determine, you know, your relative risk. It's like, there's not really a cut and dry standard on home blood sugar monitoring. So yeah. this is something that is much more up to your um, provider's clinical judgment, but it teaches you how food affects your blood sugar, which is huge. Mm -hmm. And you can also get a better idea of just an average because a, a single day snapshot or especially a single meal is like, as, I mean, as you know, because you tested your blood sugar for a while when you had gestational diabetes. I mean, you can have a wide range of readings on different days, even if you're eating identically. So it's like a little bit silly that we have decided the gold standard is like a single test on this one random day, because there are definitely cases where your blood sugar might be averaging high that day, or it might be averaging low that day, and, and we maybe misplace a, a diagnosis. So, um, but those would be your three, your three options, your glucose tolerance test, um, A1C if you're testing in the first trimester, and home blood sugar monitoring. Yeah, you know, <clears throat> excuse me, with the false positive that you mentioned, it would seem that there should definitely be some kind of questionnaire that goes along with that test to say, you know, what do you normally eat? You know, and especially I know there are two different types of OGTT, like there's um, the 50 milligram and the 75 milligram, something like that, um, where, you know, the, the standards are different. And so if you are, I think with one of them, like, isn't it you have to eat before you take the test? Yeah. Then, so, yeah. So what you're describing is like the United States um, version of a glucose tolerance test where they give you a glucose challenge or a glucose screening test, which is 50 grams of glucose. Yeah. And then if that's supposed to stratify you into like high risk for GD or not high risk. So if you are above a threshold at one hour, then you go on to take a longer test, which is the three hour, 100 gram glucose tolerance test where they're testing your fasting blood sugar. So they actually have you fast for that one. Whereas the 50 gram one, they don't ask you to be fasted. Um, mm -hmm. And then they test your blood sugar at uh, one, two, and three hours after that. And then it gets really, it gets really wonky because there's even different um, standards for what counts as a positive diagnosis. So by some standards, you only need one reading elevated, other ones you need two readings elevated. Sometimes the threshold at which it's a positive diagnosis differs because there's different criteria that different clinicians will follow. So it's kind of a hot mess. 
what most <laughs> yeah. of the, um, what, what like the California Diabetes and Pregnancy Program that I worked for and most um, countries outside of the U.S. do a, a single glucose tolerance test. It is performed fasting. So you have that control measure at least in place mm -hmm. um, and it's 75 grams of glucose and they measure your blood sugar fasting one hour and two hour and there's uh, more um, strict um, diagnostic standards it catches more mild cases of gestational diabetes but there's way less of a chance of false positives or just the crazy like scary week that people have if they get a positive on a glucose challenge test like a 50 gram test and then you have to wait a week to go back to do the 100 gram one. So you're like, have this super stressful freak out week because you're like, oh my God, I have an issue. And then you get the 100 gram one and you're fine, right? And you're like, well, what the heck? That test is bunk. I mean, it's not perfect because the 50 gram one is not performed fasting, which is a silly decision um, in my opinion because if you go in and you've just had a you know stack of pancakes or you right. you've just had a smoothie on your way to the doctor's office or if you've just had a very large lunch your likelihood of failing that screening test is really high yeah. um, and they will defend it in that well it's just a screening test and that's why we have you come back to the more you know um, strict like three-hour test while you're fasted but um, it really does result in quite a few people getting this this week of terror <laughs> as they wait for the next test um, mm -hmm. and then in the case that you actually do have gestational diabetes and get a positive test on the next one you've delayed the chance for a person to get any information about managing gestational diabetes for another week right so now you have another week of poorly controlled blood sugar and combined with a huge dose of sugar that's going to just skyrocket you for hours with the 100 gram test. I mean, it would make sense. And there's arguments back and forth throughout the gestational diabetes community um, about switching to the 75 gram test. And uh, some providers do it. Lots of people in California, of course, do it because that's their their standards are just more more stringent. Um, but a lot of the U.S. has this two step thing, which is very confusing. Yeah, it almost it. I mean, just from a patient perspective, it just seems kind of unnecessary, you know. But um, like I don't know. And actually, I knowing what I know now about GD, I think that I was a false positive because my doctor, she told me that um, the next time I came for my appointment, I, would, I was going to have to drink the drink an hour before and all that stuff. And that's all she said. She didn't give me any kind of information. And so I started to ask questions. I said, okay, because I did read a little bit about it. And I remembered, I said, well, you know, what should I do? Should I, um, should I uh, not eat? Should I eat something? Am I allowed to brush my teeth? That type of thing. And she said, yeah, you can eat something. In fact, um, eat a meal before you come. And so I said, okay. And that was, that was that. But the morning of, I woke up late and um, I had to rush to get to my appointment. And when I got in the car, I saw the glucola drink. I said, oh man, I was supposed to drink this an hour before. And right now at this point, it was like 10 minutes before my appointment. And so I said, uh, oh, and I was supposed to eat something too. So I had a granola bar in my hand. I ate the granola bar. And this was after maybe, I think, probably 10 hours of sleep I was getting back then. <laughs> and so I ate the granola bar and then I drank the drink as fast as I could on the way to the appointment. 
I got there and we had to wait. And I tested, when I tested, um, I think I, she said I was over 200. I don't know exact, exactly what my reading was, but she said I was over 200. And um, when she came back with the results, she said, okay, you have gestational diabetes. And I said, okay, so what does that mean? And so she said, well, you'll, you'll get an appointment with a dietitian and I'll make a referral for you um, to the endo and you'll have more appointments and they'll tell you what to do. And so I said, well, what about the three hour test that you told me about? And she said, oh no, you, um, you tested so high over the threshold that we're not even going to do that. And so I just said, okay. And then that, at that appointment, it was a Friday afternoon. I was the last appointment of the day. So putting in a referral and all that stuff, that wasn't going to happen until Monday morning, you know? And in the meantime, right. I'm trying to get information from her about, you know, what's happening. What is this? me and all kinds of stuff and she just she really had no answers for me and I was so frustrated and sure enough I had to wait um almost two weeks to see a yep. dietitian yep uh, it man though all in the, those two weeks you're freaking out <laughs> the range of emotions my yes. goodness it was yeah. so crazy and in fact, when I remember when I was trying to think about if I should um, follow this path of researching GD a couple of years after that point, and I remembered that moment and how I felt in that moment, and I said, you know what, no mother should ever have to be put through those emotions, especially for that length of time. And so that's really what made my decision to go ahead and start blogging about GD. But man, oh, and thankfully, there are so many well, I won't say so many more, but I've seen more people on social media that are, you know, trying to create awareness, raise awareness for gestational diabetes and more dietitians are coming out and using, um, catering to the gestational diabetic community. So I'm so happy for that. Yeah. But, yeah. Uh, the, the internet is hopefully changing things, but it, it doesn't change that initial crazy, just elevated level of fear you have. I mean, when yeah. you're pregnant anyways, a lot of times prenatal care really feels like they're always looking for a problem. Um, and so it's always like, I find that I was always kind of on edge at appointments because they were like, oh, I hope they don't find anything wrong, you know, and then they find something wrong and it just feels like, you know, your, your world is caving in. And really, I think the information that's given out about gestational diabetes is very doom and gloom kind of fear-mongering in a lot of ways um, yeah. and sometimes you have some medical practitioners who don't have the um, kindest most empathetic bedside manner and right. so you can have some not great situations um, but that was that was one of the things I noticed right away when I started working in this field was just how how much fear people would come into um, into the appointments and so I, I always wanted to make sure that like, yes, of course, we're, we're addressing this and taking this seriously, but I had to like, just downgrade the level of fear. Like, let's give you some hope yeah. here. It's not the end of the world. Like you'll be able to figure this out. The first couple of weeks are a bit of a wild ride, but um, <laughs> I always try to be a voice of, you know, reassurance and reason because it, it yeah. does get it does get kind of fear mongery sometimes. Absolutely. Yeah, it yeah. absolutely does. And I think it was the last podcast I listened to you uh, with your interview. You said that you take an empowerment approach. And I appreciate that so much because, <clears throat> excuse me, that is what I felt. I felt, um, I felt very marginalized during yes. that experience. And I know I'm not the only one, you know, so I yes. really, really appreciate yes. you for that. Okay. So 
Next, is, is gestational diabetes more common with multiples? Meaning um, like you've twins, had multiple, and tr oh, twins and twin triplets. pregnancies? Mm -hmm. Yes, it is. Yes, because awesome. when you're carrying more than one baby, uh, yeah. your your hormone levels are higher and uh, those hormone levels can can impact your your levels of insulin resistance so how well your body is responding to the hormone insulin which helps regulate your blood sugar so you have that going on um, plus by default you're also gaining more weight in a, a twin or multiple pregnancy and the more weight on board the higher the levels of insulin resistance so these are all things that are physiologically supposed to happen um, but it it does increase the likelihood that that you'll have you know blood sugar beyond the threshold that we would um, consider desirable gotcha okay uh, so in your book I don't remember exactly how you said it but you mentioned that gestational diabetes isn't preventable but there are precautions that you can take can you talk a little bit about that Sure. Yeah. And, and to clarify on that, um, gestational diabetes is something where we know there are certain risk factors and some of those are things that you can change and some of those are things that you can't change. So like your family history, for example, you can't right. change the fact that your you know, grandmother and grandfather have type 2 diabetes and that is a risk factor for gestational diabetes. Um, however, there are some nutritional things and lifestyle things that have been correlated with a higher risk of gestational diabetes or on the flip side, a lower risk of gestational diabetes. Um, so I really, for anything related to pregnancy, I'm, I'm about helping people stack the deck in their favor to yeah. avoid certain pregnancy complications or if they arise because it's not 100% in your control, right? I said stack the deck, not guarantee. Yeah. Um, that um, it, you could lessen the severity um, of a pregnancy complication. And mm -hmm. really, I think even more so than like you can have uh, beneficial clinical outcomes in like blood sugar numbers and, and whatnot, I think the even more important point is that it, it helps you feel a little more in control to know that you can do something, right? Yeah. Um, so when it comes to uh, prevention of gestational diabetes, uh, there's a number of nutrients that can impact your blood sugar metabolism and levels of insulin resistance. So we have data on vitamin D, for example, and magnesium, and uh, what's the other one? Chromium. Um, there's even some research on vitamin B6. Uh, you can pick and choose. There's a whole range of micronutrients that play yeah. a role in uh, blood sugar metabolism. There's also some new re research coming out on um, a B vitamin-like compound called inositol. And that is something that is helpful for any, any type of insulin resistance, but is also helpful um, in, in the instance of pregnancy or um, preconception fertility. So those are things where you can make a change up your intake of those nutrients and potentially see a reduction in blood sugar levels. There's some research on um, you know, dietary quality and the types of foods you're eating and the risk of gestational diabetes. So they found that having a higher intake of um, sweetened beverages, such as soda or juice, um, cereals, uh, pastries, 
um, refined carbohydrates, essentially, mm -hmm. that is correlated with a higher incidence of gestational diabetes as well. So there's a lot of people who say like, well, lifestyle, doesn't, there's nothing you can do. Like, you know, you didn't cause this. And of course, nobody really caused it per se. Um, mm -hmm. But we, we do know that we can potentially influence our blood sugar levels. And we do have research suggesting that Yep, if you have a higher in intake of uh, processed carbohydrates over the course of, of your pregnancy or even preconception, that could predispose you mm. to gestational diabetes. So it's something to consider. And what I find more interesting about those correlations is that what you find in a diet when you reduce the refined sugars and refined carbohydrates, it's not just the reduction in th the things that are raising your blood sugar, it's what is replacing those foods. So as mm -hmm. people swap out cereal for breakfast, what are, the, what are they having in its place? Yeah. And a lot of times you're having a, a, just a healthier breakfast with more micronutrients. And those are the same micronutrients that support blood sugar metabolism and hormone balance and weight management and, and all that. So if you're swapping out your cereal in the morning for, you know, um, eggs with sauteed spinach, for example, now you're getting like this big dose of folate, you're getting sufficient amounts of protein, you're feeling more satiated and satisfied after that meal. So you're probably not snacking as much mid-morning or having sugar cravings. So it's kind of this carryover effect. Um, yeah. And then the final thing I want to point out that isn't a nutrition thing per se, but there has been some pretty convincing research on exercise and how that can reduce the risk of gestational diabetes. One study, I believe, found the reduced risk was something like 68% um, for people who exercise just a few times a week for about an hour. Um, so it doesn't have to be, you know, you exercise every day and do crazy CrossFit, but <laughs> even something as simple as, you know, going for a walk or um, doing some yoga or something that's, that's a little more um, low key for those of us who aren't crazy exercise fanatics. Um, that that does help for sure. The more movement your body has, the more chances your body has to use up that blood sugar and to help you become more responsive to the insulin in your body. Wonderful. Yeah, that control factor, it's bigger than we realize, I think, until we're in a position where we feel like we have no control, you know? So, yes. so when it comes to eating for pregnancy, you know, for the person who isn't all into nutrition and probably maybe has the standard American diet and, you know, doesn't eat so many fruits and vegetables, would you, would you say there's an easy way for them to attack eating for pregnancy? Well, I think it, some of it comes down to just awareness um, about the ingredients used in our foods and um, you know, healthier ways to prepare our foods, um, just getting back to how grandma used to cook really, yeah, or maybe yeah. great grandma at this point. Um, the more, I mean, a lot of this, when you're talking like really standard American diet, my interpretation of that is, um, a lot of processed foods, a, sugar sweetened beverage like a soda or a Gatorade or absolutely like that with meals. Um, my interpretation is like a fairly large 
portions at meals that are focused around some sort of a starch, like a pasta or bread or rice, um, potato-based meal that also has like maybe some meat on the side. <laughs> and some of the education around what foods affect your blood sugar, I find to be the most um, meaningful for people because mm -hmm. if you're looking sort of from a top-down approach of like what have we all been told by dietitians or the government or whatever about what we should eat everybody knows fruits and vegetables are healthy right right and then all the other mess and whether they eat them or not uh, is a moot point they all know that so if we're throwing more eat more fruits and vegetables at people everyone goes yeah yeah okay i got it mm -hmm. <laughs> Um, unless you're teaching them how to make vegetables taste good, they're not going to eat them, first right. of all. Um, second of all, the, the next thing they'll think of beyond that is that um, whole grains are healthy and um, fat is bad for you. Mm -hmm. And we need to flip those two around. We need to talk about <laughs> what actually constitutes a healthy fat. Um, and we need to talk about... Um, how different foods affect your blood sugar and that includes whole grains being something that definitely drives your blood sugar up and doesn't keep you satisfied for very long i mean if you're starting your day with oatmeal and a banana and you know a glass of orange juice and you're like well i'm getting my whole grains and my fruits and vegetables if you're not seeing that as a meal that is just a carb and a carb and a carb, which is going to give you a huge blood sugar spike followed by a crash, and then physiologically your body will feel intense hunger and cravings for things that are sweet or carby so you can raise your blood sugar back up. If you don't know that, and you don't know that eggs are actually going to be a healthier replacement for this. Right. I mean, we have to undo a lot of conditioning of like decades yes. of, of government dietary guidelines messaging around saturated fat and cholesterol being bad. So if somebody just gets a hold of a blood sugar meter and starts to observe the patterns, you naturally will realize that having a high amount of even whole grains, I'm not saying you have to eliminate them all, but having all of your meals based around grains or starches is going to drive your blood sugar up like crazy. Um, so it's tricky for me to like tackle this question because on one hand, if somebody is just eating a super processed food diet, yes, if you reduce those processed foods, even if you're replacing it with oatmeal for breakfast and it's oatmeal for breakfast in place of, you know, um, Fruit Loops, you're going to see an improvement. But there's yeah. also a step beyond that where you focus on getting adequate amounts of protein in. Um, not being fearful of fat and then sort of moderating your intake of, of whole food carbohydrates. Um, that's, that's the step. That's like the next step that people need to take. And a lot of people stop at just replacing the processed foods with whole grain, low fat foods. And yeah, you'll see an improvement because you're not eating as many food additives and as, as much um, added sugar, but you can go beyond that. So some of that is, you know, baby steps. Um, but for me, I've, I've always been trying to sort of demystify and, and re-educate on, on some of the nutritionisms that we've all been taught for so, so long. Mm -hmm. And to go back to the breakfast example, some of the biggest shifts I've been able to um, accomplish clinically with people is with 
shifting breakfast. If you shift your breakfast to a more protein rich breakfast and forego having your meal based around cereal or oatmeal or fruit or um, you know toast, you'll see huge improvements. And it's not from forcing a change. Um, you can have a quite delicious, you know, eggs and bacon, hopefully throwing some vegetables on there, um, kind of a breakfast that mm -hmm. tastes really, really good. Um, yeah. And naturally their satiety and hunger cues and, and blood sugar balance hormones are all fall into line and it, you don't really have to force uh, much of a change. So you know, I know a lot of people will look at me like I have three heads when I say, yeah, you can have eggs and bacon. And they're like, what? <laughs> they're right. like, crazy. Um, until you feel the difference yourself. And then you're like, oh, mm -hmm. I actually feel great. And uh, my blood sugar is great. And my energy levels are great. And I'm not having crazy cravings. So um, that was kind of a roundabout long way to answer your question. But no, I mean, it sparked so much, especially when you said focusing on foods that are good for your blood sugar. What, why is, I mean, not just in a gestational diabetes pregnancy, why is blood sugar so important to our health? Oh man, I mean, that's a very good question. So blood sugar, elevated blood sugar is, is inflammatory to your body. Your okay. body sees it as an emergency when you have elevated blood sugar or see frequent blood sugar elevations. And it responds by pumping out a whole bunch of insulin to try to bring your blood sugar down as, as quickly as possible. Um, but you end up with this crazy blood sugar roller coaster. So not only do you have this initial, you know, surge of insulin and insulin is sort of an inflammatory hormone in a way. Um, mm -hmm. You also have um, effects, the blood sugar can affect different cells in your body, like glycated hemoglobin, hemoglobin A1C is the hemoglobin particles. Those are the, you know, the oxygen carrying um, parts of your red blood cells have essentially been like caramel coated. They've been mm. smothered in sugar mm -hmm. from seeing instance after instance of high blood sugar time and time again. I mean, that's, a, it's an average, you know, your, your uh, red blood cells have an average life of about three months or so outside of pregnancy. And so if they're constantly being smothered by sugar, that's where you see this higher level of glycated sugar coated hemoglobin. It's okay. a problem. Your, your body can't carry oxygen as efficiently. Your wow. body inflamed. Um, your insulin levels skyrocket and those things have downstream effects on pretty much every, every part of your body. It has effects on your brain. I mean, Alzheimer's is, is been nicknamed mm. type three diabetes, so it can wow. cause plaque and, and, you know, interfere with the function of your brain. Um, elevated blood sugar is also implicated in uh, the development of heart disease. That's why we see heart disease mm -hmm. um, at a higher rate in people with uncontrolled diabetes. It's damaging to your eyes. It's damaging to your kidneys. That's why you see dialysis and end-stage diabetes. It's damaging to your hormone balance. Um, that's why we see for people with like an undiagnosed type 2 diabetes or poorly controlled diabetes, you see a higher incidence of fertility issues. Um, it affects every part of your body. So wow. out, even outside of pregnancy, 
And then I'm not even talking about energy levels, right? But it, when you have a blood sugar roller coaster, your energy is all over the place. Um, it mm -hmm. definitely has an effect on just your daily quality of life. So I do recommend, even for people who don't believe they have any blood sugar issues, um, I do recommend that people start to get a handle of what foods raise your blood sugar and what foods don't. Mm -hmm. And try to make a point of including a lot of the foods that don't significantly raise your blood sugar, the non-high carb foods into your life, and then observe the difference. Doesn't mean you have to cut out carbohydrates completely. You don't have to go full on keto or anything um, unless you want to. You can, you can dabble in that too if you want. It's all an experiment, right? But, um, but a lot of people I find are just living off of carbs, carbs, carbs. You know, it's yeah. like toast with no butter because butter is bad for my heart, they say, um, which right. is not true. But they'll do, do like <laughs> toast with jam and their juice and their coffee mm -hmm. with fat-free half and half, which is just uh, an abomination of chemicals. <laughs> I don't know how they can even get away with calling it half and half with a whole bunch of sugar or, you know, fat-free cream or whatever is in their coffee. And then like an hour later, they're like, man, I'm really hungry. And what do you go for? Something that's going to give you a pick, pick me up again. So you're going to go for, you know, something caffeinated, something sweetened, um, maybe go to the break room at, at your work or whatever it is, pick up a donut or something sweet, even if it's a so-called healthy granola bar. I mean, it's oats and honey mm -hmm. and, you know, other sugars, it's all carbs. And then you go into lunch and maybe there's a sandwich and you've been, you know, try to be good. So I didn't put mayo on it. And hopefully there's a little bit of protein in there. Yeah. But you're getting, you know, between two slices of bread and then you have your chips on the side and then your soda on the side, people are just getting so many carbs mm -hmm. um, on a standard American diet and even on a diet where people are trying to, you know, do good and follow like the prudent nutritional rules. Right. Um, on the flip side, if you include, you know, aren't afraid of fat and, and include enough protein in your world and instead snack on nuts and like i said eggs for breakfast and you have you know water or sparkling water or iced tea that doesn't have sugar added to it um as your beverage and you have you know avocado with your meals and you you include vegetables and you know you're still able to eat things that are tasty like olives and salami and cheese and and whatnot but those foods that i'm mentioning right now are not very high in carbohydrates and they happen to keep you full for a lot longer too and then you're not on that blood sugar roller coaster all day long um mm -hmm. yeah so for for a mom who is struggling with trying to find her sweet spot with carbs you know there's there's a bunch of women who get um they're so confused because their dietitian is telling them to eat more carbs uh per day right. and to them it just seems wrong either by logic or by intuition how how do they justify um I, I hate i hate this relationship but how would they justify that to their healthcare team you know like no because some 
most often, <laughs> I'm trying to be careful yeah, with my words here. I know. Yeah, but most often, you know, it's almost as if the healthcare team is a dictatorship and that just shouldn't be. You're your own person and you have control over your health. In fact, you should be the yep. most important, you know? Yep. So um, how, how do they go back to their team and say, hey, I don't, I don't like this. This isn't working. I don't think I need this many carbs, especially when the team might be so insistent. You know, it's a tricky question. And I feel like, um, like you, I'm going to try to dance around this and not offend, but um, ultimately you kind of have to make up your mind and how you want your relationship to be with your team. Mm -hmm. So if you think the team is, because ultimately, like, like you said, you're in charge. Um, so if you personally have read the information and understand that it is in fact safe for me to go lower carb and in fact safer because I will have better blood sugar control. Mm -hmm. And the data on that, by the way, is all in chapter 11 of Real Food for Gestational Diabetes. That's where I go okay. through all the research on on um, carbs and if it's safe to go low carb in pregnancy. So you can make up that in your mind for yourself, right? And you can decide, is this something that I feel my team would be open to learning and something that I wanna share with them? Um, and a lot of people do. A lot of people actually will end up gifting a copy of Real Food for GD to their practitioner or sharing a podcast that I've been on it depends on the practitioner how much time or interest they have really in, in being open to new information. Mm -hmm. um, and ultimately, I think that's the high road to take. And that would be like the, the best possible outcome in that you have a provider who's willing to listen to you and understand what works for you, understand that there's individual variation, um, and be open to new research. And then there's other situations where you you know that provider is not open to hearing this information or you don't feel like it's your job to educate them which arguably it's not and in that case you might take the smile and nod approach where you say okay yep i'll do that mm -hmm. and leave the appointment and go on to do what you're gonna do i mean that is also an option it really isn't your job necessarily to educate them if you don't feel like they're going to be receptive. Um, and I can tell you, I, you know, I have two kids. And so I've been in these weird situations where, you know, it's like even the person who's written the book written the on <laughs> diabetes and written the book on prenatal nutrition, there yeah. would still be times where it was like, okay, I think this is a moment for education, but it's, you're in a, you know, there's like this kind of authoritarian yeah. relationship with medical providers. And so you don't want to like insult their many years of education and training. Um, but you also have to understand that they don't always have a lot of education and training on certain topics, right. um, especially nutrition. The ones that do are usually open to a conversation the ones that don't and just want to follow the guidelines and not entertain any other um, alternatives, um, maybe they're not the ones that you even want to bother having the conversation with. Um, yeah. So I don't know, it's tricky because I don't think there's like a right answer for everybody. I feel like you yeah. just need to sort of 
you know, play it by ear, trust your gut on how you want to handle it. You know, of course, we didn't talk about the third option where the third option is you can follow their advice and, and eat a high carb diet and see the changes in your blood sugar. And, and by the way, some people can handle, can actually handle the high carbs of the meal plan. They were probably a false positive diagnosis, but Mm -hmm. some people can, um, other people will do that and have elevated blood sugar and um, take the insulin or medication to um, to lower it, and we'll be happy with with that as the intervention. and And that's also fully in your free will to do that as well. But if you are talking about the scenario you were presenting, where the person is observing their body cannot handle um, a high amount of carbohydrates without experiencing high blood sugar, and they they feel like I don't want to keep eating high carb, then you probably want to go with one of the two options that we talked about. Um, right. before. Awesome. Yeah. And um, I remember you talking about a process, correct me if I'm it's uh, glu- gluconeogenesis. Yeah. Is that mm-hmm. Yeah. I thought that was so interesting how you said the, your body can take fat and, and protein and actually produce energy from it. Is that correct? Yep. Mm-hmm. Okay, so because that's, that's I guess, maybe um, mis-messaging that we need carbohydrates in order to have energy. I know I've heard it plenty of times. I don't hear it so much anymore. Maybe there is a shift uh, taking place, but um, I did not know that your body, I, I thought we needed carbs to have energy, like, because I was literally told that, you know, so I didn't know that our energy could also be produced from other sources. So that's really cool. Yeah, I mean, it can, that's physiologically how our bodies work. Um, And a, a little caveat here is that, you know, I'm not necessarily recommending a zero carbohydrate diet, which by the way, a zero carbohydrate diet would be pretty much entirely meat, fish, eggs, and fat. Okay. So I'm not recommending like a zero carbohydrate diet because you do also get carbohydrates in all of your vegetables, in all of your nuts and seeds, in even your low carb fruits like berries, you still have carbs in there. Um, And I think there's a place for including some other high carb foods like grains and legumes and and other starches in your diet. Um, But even when you're eating what feels like a very low carb diet, like I'm just, I just had, you know, my salad with vegetables and I had my salmon on top and my avocado and my salad dressing or whatever, you're still eating carbs, right? You're still including carbs. Um, But yes, you don't require half your diet coming from carbohydrates. You don't require having 45 to 60 grams of carbohydrates every meal to stay alive, (laughs) to put it that way. And uh, certainly you don't necessarily um, require a, you know, as the guidelines are 45 to 65% of your calories coming from, from carbohydrates to be, you know, a thriving human being, especially now in the last, you know, five, five years or so, so many people have gone low carb or keto. Mm -hmm. Um, The physiology is very clear that our bodies have the ability to create glucose from other fuels. The biggest problem with people going um, low carb is also a not inc- including, you know, nutrient dense foods. So you can run into micronutrient deficiencies. 
Um, but B, a lot of people end up under eating accidentally because they're so satisfied and mm -hmm. then they stay full longer that they can accidentally under eat. That, that's right. like one of the biggest um, challenges with it. And probably why, you know, when they do weight loss trials comparing low fat to low carb, low carb usually wins out because people just naturally eat a little bit less because they're satisfied. So um, yeah, but you don't, you don't have to eat high carb necessarily for, for really for any reason, but most definitely not for pregnancy. You need some carbs because you need the micronutrients that you're getting from the foods that also contain carbohydrates, like your vegetables and right. nuts and seeds and berries and legumes and whatnot. They have valuable nutrients, but that can be a much smaller proportion of your caloric intake compared to what the guidelines are. And you can actually um, maintain all your micronutrient levels and even exceed the micronutrient intake of the conventional um, of a conventional meal plan that's very high carb because like white flour, uh, potatoes, they really don't have nearly as many micronutrients as all the other foods that would come in to replace them. Gotcha. Okay. So then on the other end of the spectrum, when it comes to high, high carbs, like when a, a mom wants to have a cheat meal, like say for her birthday or baby shower or what have you, it's a big question in the community. Is it okay to have a cheat meal? And then not only is it okay, the frequency of having a cheat meal, and then also what is what is happening to the baby when all those carbs are being processed? You know, um, the, the concern is, is my baby being hurt? Can you speak to any of that? Right. So with something like a cheat meal, um, or just let me, let me back up for a second. The, the major issues that we're concerned about with gestational diabetes have to do with the amount of time and frequency that the baby is exposed to elevated blood sugar. So let's give the example of somebody who tested negative on a, on a gestational diabetes screening test. And they go on to regularly enjoy their soda or their smoothies or their cake or their cookies or their big pasta meals or whatever. They might be having elevated blood sugar from those meals. They most certainly are. Um, maybe it's not quite as high as somebody who has a, you know, a higher degree of insulin resistance to the point that we would call them, you know, gestational diabetic, but they're unknowingly having spikes in their blood sugar all the time. Yeah. The people who are eating, what is it, five or six dates a day toward the end of their pregnancy to try to prepare for labor. Um, and by the way, there's mixed research on that, but there is some on it. Uh, that can be 75 grams of sugar at a time. If you're eating all those dates all at once, I mean, they're certainly having elevated blood sugar right. at least once a day from doing something like that. And they just don't even know. So for somebody with GD that is fairly well controlled, meaning like, so if you're testing your fasting blood sugar and then testing after each meal, that's four times a day times seven days a week. So if my math is right, that's what, 20 times a week. And you have one or two elevations over the course of the week. Mm -hmm. I don't think you have anything to worry about because just by chance or by stress or 
maybe your meter is even reading funny. I mean, those oh, have yeah. variable accuracy. That's a whole other can of worms. Um, that's just going to happen because variations in blood sugar happen. I mean, then they happen to people who don't have diabetes. I've worn a continuous glucose monitor many times. And as somebody who has, by all lab markers, really great blood sugar metabolism, no insulin resistance issues, I can spike my blood sugar. This is outside of pregnancy, but I can spike my blood sugar to the 170s by having a large bowl of oatmeal. Not even that large of a bowl, just like a bowl of oatmeal like they recommend that you have. That's yeah. a disaster for my blood sugar. Now, maybe if I ate it on a regular basis, I would sort of habituate and my body would start producing higher amounts of bigger boluses of insulin for me to, quote, handle it better. Um, mm -hmm. But that gives me a big spike. And they've done studies on people who wear a continuous glucose monitor. And if they provide um, a test meal of cornflakes and milk, 40% of participants, even if they don't have diabetes, will experience a blood sugar elevation in the pre-diabetic or diabetic range. So mm -hmm. I think there's a lot of people who don't have a gestational diabetes diagnosis who are walking around with high blood sugar readings from time to time and have no idea. So yeah. in the context of somebody who's taking this diagnosis really seriously and is maintaining really good, good blood sugar levels, I don't think an occasional elevated reading is gonna do much harm. Um, the levels of blood sugar at which we start to see greater problems are when you're having blood sugar readings exceeding, and this is in pregnancy, like 160 or 180. Um, I would be concerned if that was, you know, a regular occurrence. And, you know, for, for our purposes, you know, the goal with gestational diabetes by the stricter standards that I abide to um, of less than 120, after a meal, you know, we're talking 40 to 60 points above target. Um, I wouldn't want to see that super often, but if I'd see an occasional reading in the 130s or a random reading in the 140s and they had cake at their baby shower, I'm not concerned. You made a conscious choice to indulge. And as long as it's a choice and something that you are, you know, doing that, that you're in control of and you're not like, I don't know why I keep getting readings in the 160s. Like that's when we get concerned. But mm -hmm. if you know like, okay, usually I can have a post-meal reading at 105 or 112 or 88 or, you know, people have a wide range of responses and you have an occasional high number. Personally, and I'm not your medical provider, I'm not your personal right. dietitian, I wouldn't be concerned. And in my experience, a lot of providers who work with gestational diabetes also kind of, you know, maybe don't give you a free pass to just like binge necessarily. Right, right. Have a, a bit of a treat, you're fine. And one little trick is that when you are having one of those little treats, if you combine it with something that has um, sufficient fat and protein, like say you're going to have um, a piece of cake. Yes, make it a small piece of cake, not a Mondo huge piece of cake. Um, but if you have some almonds on the side, you know, you got your fat and protein and fiber in there, all things that help to regulate your blood sugar better and prevent it from spiking as high, um, mm -hmm. you might see a more advantageous reading after that. If instead you're having a really big piece of cake or you're having fruit punch alongside it uh, and it's a pasta meal and like all the carbs combined, right? yeah, you might get like 
a really high reading. And yeah. I'm not here to say you can't do that, but just make sure that it's a conscious choice. Um, and, and not super often because, you know, over, overall, we want to see your average blood sugar level as closely mimicking somebody who doesn't have any sort of blood sugar issue um, whatsoever. Okay, cool. With the work that you're doing, and I mean, it's obvious, we, you already talked about it earlier, that you want to see changes in the guidelines and, you know, these changes need to happen. What, what is your work focused on right now? So my work is actually focused on training other practitioners. I mean, okay. I still do my support of clients. I, I run an online gestational diabetes um, course and there's, you know, a Facebook support group where I, where I interact and provide feedback for people's questions and alongside all the training. So I, I'm still doing, you know, the one-on-one -on -one part of it, but in order for change to happen, my opinion, having worked on guidelines before, is that there's a lot of bureaucratic red tape in the way yeah. of changing things. So the fact that the Czech Republic was able to just shift their guidelines, they did a complete 180. They used to have a minimum carbohydrate goal of 200 grams per day for pregnancy. Wow. It's even higher than the US, which is at 175. They flipped that around and put it at a limit of 200 grams. Yeah. And they're now reporting that their needs for medication and insulin have dropped to around 10% or below. Which awesome. Is more than half, um, which is exactly, ironically, what I'd see in practice too. It dropped by half once you start instituting um, lower carbohydrate guidelines. Mm -hmm. um, so I think part of that is because it's a smaller country. I think there's a lot more um, challenge in shifting the guidelines in the U.S. And, you know, it's 2020. They've been working on the 2020 dietary guidelines. They try to update them every five years. And unfortunately, they are specifically ignoring the science, a lot of the clinical data we have on the benefits of a low-carbohydrate diet. And if the general dietary guidelines don't shift, in my opinion, the pregnancy dietary guidelines won't shift as well. Yeah. Until that happens, we're going to have the same old, same old. So my, my solution is more of a grassroots effort. So, mm -hmm. you know, I have my two books. Um, yes, of course, Real Food for GD is focused more on blood sugar. But the other one also is generally the same sort of dietary principles that we were talking about today still results in blood sugar balance. Right. And so people read that, they take that to their clinicians, they sometimes help their healthcare provider, um, you know, shift the information that they're providing on nutrition for pregnancy or gestational diabetes. And then I also offer um, continuing education webinars. It's geared towards practitioners, but I have a lot, a lot of non-practitioners who listen in too over at the Women's Health Nutrition Academy where I'm directly speaking to the practitioners, the doctors, the nurse practitioners, the dietitians, the diabetes educators, the nurses, the midwives, um, and training them. And if enough people shift their practice and see the benefits in their practice, and you, you can't fully grasp how important it is until you see 
the differences in real life outcomes, in my opinion, until you see all those little anecdotal stories of like, wow, that client had, you know, the preeclampsia symptoms were starting and, and she was, you know, borderline gestational diabetic. And look at this, we shift, shifted her diet. And within two weeks, her blood sugar and blood pressure readings are within normal. How did that happen? You know, you see enough of those case studies over and over and over again, and then it starts to settle in that like, wow, we can do something with this. So I believe it's going to change at a grassroots level. And and that's why I'm, I'm focused on, you know, yes, still supporting clients and and providing, you know, books for the general audience, but also um, looking at training practitioners and hopefully we'll have enough, you know, of us come together that we'll be able to shift guidelines. I mean, I've know I've I've heard from some dietitians who have um, brought my work to their clinic provider or showed the clinical improvements that people have had and were able to do the little things like shift to their education materials. So instead of providing a meal plan that by default had 45 to 60 grams of carbohydrates, they're now providing a meal plan that provides 15 to 30. And you can go up to the higher range if you want to and the person can handle it, but that's not the default because Mm -hmm. the default right now doesn't work for the majority of clients, right? So if we have enough of these little clinics and hospitals and doctor's offices um, making these changes, I think ultimately we will, we will see the guidelines shift too. Wonderful. Is there anything that we can do at our very bottom level besides, you know, recommending your book to our our healthcare team or anything like that? Gosh, um, I think if you're open to like that scenario we were talking about earlier, if you're open to having the conversation with your provider, um, do it because the the providers who, and I, I really think most providers are like, good-hearted people who only want to see great outcomes. They might be afraid of change. They might be afraid of offering something that goes against guidelines. Um, But maybe you do it at the end of your pregnancy. A lot of times we'd get calls from the hospital like, you said this person had gestational diabetes, but they had like a totally healthy, you know, seven pound, three ounce baby. Like that person didn't have GD. It's like, no, that person had well-controlled gestational diabetes Mm -hmm. and therefore their outcomes should be equivalent to somebody who has a quote uncomplicated pregnancy right so maybe it's after the fact proof is in the pudding proof is in you having great blood sugar control your whole pregnancy proof is in you having a healthy baby um and then you provide it hey yeah this is what i this is what i did i found this resource really helpful it was more helpful than um the handout that you provided yeah, maybe they're maybe they're willing to to see it from that angle. Um, I think that would probably the, be the best thing. And certainly, if you're in any gestational diabetes um, support groups online, or chat rooms or forums, online forums, and you see people coming, I mean, you know the posts, right? That's like, yes. I don't understand. I've been following the meal plan for three days, and I am so full trying to eat all of these carbohydrates. I can't fit it in the meal. And my blood sugar is high. I'm following it. Why is, why are my blood sugar numbers getting worse? This is more carbs than I'm ever used to eating. You know, those posts, right? Because I've seen so many of them. Absolutely. Um, Comment on those and just bring a little food for thought. Share this podcast interview 
link. Let them know, you know, I have a free video series on gestational diabetes over at uh, realfoodforgd.com. Totally free. I have lots of articles. There's lots of podcasts and interviews that you can share. They don't have to buy a thing, um, but just offer an alternative perspective. Maybe share your story. You know, I had the same experience and I found that I couldn't eat 60 grams of carbohydrates a meal and my sweet spot was XYZ and I was able to figure it out by you know checking my blood sugar and adjusting my diet to fit accordingly it turns out you don't need as many carbs I mean be a voice of reason because we need enough people um, speaking to that we certainly know there's plenty of people saying no 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 you have to do exactly what the meal plan says your yeah. blood sugar is high too bad insulin it, it's, uh, not, it's not logical. There yeah. are cases where you need insulin and medication, for sure, um, especially for fasting blood sugar, which is the trickiest one to control. But post-meal blood sugar readings, if you're having high blood sugar and you're eating so many carbs that you feel stuffed to the brim and don't feel good, you have permission to not eat that yeah. many carbohydrates. The meal plan is not um, universal. We're all individual people with different blood sugar tolerances or carbohydrate tolerances and you got to listen to your body and and not be so concerned about breaking a rule here or there <laughs> right yeah you know i say we know our bodies you know your own body your doctor knows anatomy but you know your own body and now that you know you're checking your blood sugar you have that data yeah. behind you to For really sure. back up whatever you're feeling intuitively yeah. Awesome. And you know, you said something that kind of sparked, it is a whole new conversation, so we'll save it for another day, but uh, that perhaps uh, medical, uh, medical members, they expect certain things in a GD pregnancy, like during delivery. Yes. Or, and so I wonder, you know, how much influence that has on outcomes and, you know, how yes. their deliveries go very, uh, I, I, I'm getting excited. 100%. Oh it, my goodness. It does impact it because if they are expecting every client with GD is going to have a, you know, 10 pound baby that's going to have shoulder dystocias and going to have blood sugar issues and a NICU stay and underdeveloped lungs. And therefore we need to do, and we need to induce early or do yeah. an emergency C-section or scheduled C-section um, yes, it absolutely plays a role in outcomes. So wow. it's tricky. Um, but if, if you can be the, the shining example that, that like really excellent clinical outcome, despite having this, you know, scarlet letter of yeah. on your chart, I mean, there's just count. We, we rarely had, a a large baby, they call it a macrosomic baby. We rarely had cases of, of macrosomia after we switched to doing low carb in our clinic. It was just so rare. Yeah. So, so, so rare. And sometimes there's, you know, you have bigger babies and it has nothing to do with GD, by the way. I was a nine pound baby. My mom did not have gestational diabetes. I don't have blood sugar metabolism issues. I was just nine pounds, you know? So there are cases where you have bigger babies who are still healthy. Mm -hmm. um, and that's probably what would happen in those cases. But at least, you know, you know, if your blood sugar is well controlled, you can't blame that big baby on GD. And it has right. to be the natural way that baby was going to come out and, and, you know, own it. That's fine. Awesome. 
Well, thank you so much for coming on. I really enjoyed our chat. This has been so informative and I know a lot of moms are gonna find this information very helpful. So thank you so much. Thank you for having me. Okay, guys, that was an amazing episode, right? We touched on so much and there was still so much more to talk about. So in the future episodes, I'm going to be expanding on some of the topics that we touched on in this episode. So be sure to stay tuned, subscribe to the podcast, subscribe to the YouTube channel. I'll be posting both places. What I'm going to do is link to her blog post about when she failed her glucose test, as well as her blog post about nine myths of gestational diabetes, linking to her site, to her books, and to her free course for gestational diabetes. And you know we're all about food here, so I'm going to link to her pulled pork recipe. She has gotten so many good reviews on it. I tried it, I made it twice for the family, and they devoured it. All of those links you could find at the gestationaldiabetic.com slash to the number two. And if you enjoyed this episode, if you found it valuable, please share with other moms so that they become informed as well. And if you're watching on YouTube, please like and share and subscribe so that other people can see this content. Guys, we are here to inform and change the world for the better. So please do your part and help spread awareness. Okay, guys, I'll talk to you next time.